0: You're listening to music from National Geographic's documentary, Sea of Shadows, composed by H. Scott Salinas, who is one of our guests today. We're also joined by Colin Stetson, who scored Nat Geo's new limited series, Barkskins. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this is the making of a Nat Geo podcast. Scott and Colin, so nice to have you here. How are you guys holding up these days?
1: Great,
2: thanks. you. Doing good. Well. Thanks so much for having us.
0: Good. And Scott, I must ask, what does the H stand for in front of your name? It's very mysterious.
2: It, <laughs> it stands mm-hmm. for Ednando. H-E-R. Oh, that's, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's like Fernando, but you don't pronounce the H. And it's right. Colombian. My father's Colombian.
0: I love that. Sort of M. Night Shyamalan style, right?
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, thank you again for being here. It's an it's a interesting time in the world, but we really do appreciate you taking your time to speak with us about your incredible work on these two pieces, Barkskins and Sea of Shadows. But before we talk about those, I did want to ask about your respective music backgrounds. And Scott, I'd like to start with you. You had an interesting environment in which you grew up, and I'd love to know how that informed your musical tastes as a kid.
2: Yeah, so I grew up in the Caribbean from about eight to eighteen, and um, and I just my I got into music just by playing guitar as a hobby for fun when I was around eleven, and then by like thirteen and fourteen, I just started playing in all these like. Cla- All there is in the Caribbean is classic rock or reggae bands, <laughs> <laughs> or actually reggae—you know—bands that play both, depending on what you know what hour it is in the set. Well, it's also so, a lot of uh,
0: expats living in the Caribbean as well. Yes. So you had probably a lot of Americans living around you as well.
2: Particularly in St. Croix and the Virgin Islands, because every time there's a gigantic hurricane, a lot of people come from the south to do construction and build it back up. And they're like, why would I ever leave this place? <laughs> so there's, so it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty neat environment. Uh, so I grew up playing in, in bands at bars before I could drink or anything. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't really study music until I went to college.
0: So but, you had no so, formal so, guitar training? Did you no. teach yourself?
2: Yeah, just self-taught.
0: Wow. And who was your favorite guitarist growing up?
2: You know, probably growing up, someone like Jimi Hendrix. And then when I got into school, I got way, way heavy into jazz. But when I was growing up and I heard jazz, I didn't even know what it was. It sounded like noise to me. Now it's like (laughs) the only thing I want to listen to. It's really interesting.
0: (laughs) That's great. And Colin, you are from Ann Arbor. And tell me, uh, was it all about Iggy Pop for you?
1: It was not all about Iggy Pop. It was hard to not be a a lot about Iggy Pop. Um, There was—I always thought that he had sat at um, my uh, my desk at school because somebody had scrawled it years ago into the—and I I imagine it was somebody else. But um, uh, yeah, I—I was—I was was raised up um, from an early age on like uh, mostly classic rock um similarly but all just because that was the those were the only records that my father had Mm -hmm. and so it was all jimi hendrix all the time and that became the foundation for everything i started playing sax when i was nine but didn't start to um i guess really formally uh take lessons and and get serious about it until maybe 15 Mm -hmm. and then i got very fast-tracked into um i kind of did the the classical prodigy thing um and, and, and eventually went to um, University of Michigan Music School for classical wow. music, but uh, with a lot of different study in uh, jazz and contemporary improvisation and composition.
0: Wow, very impressive. And Scott, tell me when did you devote your life full-time to music as a career where you said, okay, I can't deny that this is what I want to do. I'm going to pretend that I don't have any other options and I'm going to just do this.
2: It's an interesting question because I, I went to college at Princeton because I thought I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> I and knew that then, there was
0: some <laughs> career track, but I, I could tell that there was—you were probably wrestling with another option back then.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just—my dad was a lawyer, and then I—I I took a couple music classes, and I started taking guitar lessons with a teacher at Princeton. And, and then I—and then I was like, "Well, what if I just changed my major to music?" My dad was like, "Many lawyers are music majors. It's fine. You can—it doesn't matter what you major in if you want." <laughs> and then. And then after Princeton, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston. And that's Mm kind of somewhere in there, you know, looking at what the next educational step would be was when I I think I solidified the decision. At Princeton, you have a directed study, which is like a thesis. But if you're in a creative major, you can create something. Mm -hmm. So I did a film score for my thesis. So I, I knew I was heading in that direction, but I think I didn't really bear down and bite the bullet and admit it until I said, okay, well, if I'm going to go get trained, you know, properly in something, I'm pretty sure that's what I'm up to now.
0: Well, that's great. And and Colin, for you, since it's, you were so well-versed in so many instruments, were you wrestling with whether to be a performer? Or did you want to be a composer? Did you know what that meant in terms of professional opportunity?
1: I was a performer throughout high school and um, and then... Just, that was my track. I was a performer uh, through um, through college years. I moved to San Francisco afterward and was playing in bands of all sorts—jazz uh, and hip hop and folk and rock—and um, doing. And then I started the bulk of my solo um, performance and writing started started in those years when I was in my early twenties. Um, but uh, and I and I wrote uh, for the groups that I led uh, and and. Um, and then over the years that became more and more of a of a of a focus but uh, I was a performer and, as I still am a performer it's still a huge part of what I, what mm. I do uh composition for film started formally um I think it was about 10 or 11 years ago uh, when I did uh, Alexander Moore's Blue Caprice mm. that was the first um the first feature that i did
0: that's wonderful and so at this stage in your careers and this is something i think a lot of people in the the business who are aspiring to do what you do would love to know is how does someone get hired to compose for a series or a film is there a bidding process (laughs) do people submit their ideas and then the filmmaker says yes that's the sound i want how do you get your message across how do you connect with the creators in the first place to then pitch yourself as the best person for the project maybe start with colin
1: i don't think that there's any one answer uh, to that question, there's so many different ways, even that I've encountered in 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 the in the decade that I've been uh, scoring film and dealing with um, directors and producers. Uh, and so, in, initially, Alexander came to me s- simply because he knew my solo work and and thought of it as being rather uh, cinematic in its nature and uh, and and imagery. And so, that was my foot in the door, and it was a very you know, it was it was very fortunate for me because I had wanted to make that move for some time. But it was, you know, it is um, when you're in the midst of at that time, I was touring most of the year for and I had been for many years. Uh, and so it is a, a strange and, um, and difficult step to make when you have when you have no uh, formal uh, invitation. Um, but since then. It's it's a myriad of things. It, there are a lot like that where um, specifically, you know, like Ari Aster had been writing um, uh, the, the the script to Hereditary when he uh, uh, and, and while he was writing it, he was listening exclusively, uh, as he uh, said to me, mm-hmm. uh, my, mu- my music for for mood. And so there are things like that where it was very intrinsic to the process of the of the hmm. screenwriter um, director. And then others where I. Um, became uh, known to a director or producer through, a, through an editor who had temped in music of mine uh, in the process. And, and so there, yeah, just a lot of different ways in the door with different people, and it continues to be very much the same.
0: That's very cool. So I imagine David Fincher was probably a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, thus hiring Atticus and Trent yeah. Reznor <laughs> for, for Social Network, which, of course, worked out beautifully. Yeah, so in is. some cases, you have that fan-based connection Other times, maybe Scott, tell us your journey on that front. Well,
2: I always say, I always say like when people ask like, well, sort of how do you get into it? How do you make it as a film? How do you start? Like, where do you start? I always say there's there's three ways. There's three paths in and you could do one, two or three or all three. And the first path is be a rock star. That's what Colin, that's what Colin did. Oh, so that's that's you know you, you can think of guys Danny Elfman, Trent Reznor. Mm-hmm. Like if you and what I mean by that is if you have proven success in another you know field of music where you have paid your dues and established your established yourself, um, folks will reach out to you if they're fans of your music. And the way in, you know, Cliff Martinez, Red Hot Chili mm-hmm. Peppers. There's a lot of examples and. Um, you know i you'll get your shot in maybe a little bit easier of a way, but there's a lot of people who tried it, and then they don't they don't <laughs> stick with it either they don't like it or it's not their a fit, so it doesn't mean like, oh, you're gonna be guaranteed to make it, but just as that's a way in and then the other way in, I always say is um apprentice um." And in the apprentice model, uh, you essentially, you know, you work for a composer, and oftentimes, depending on you know their personality, you might do everything from making coffee to picking up their dry cleaning to orchestration, <laughs> et cetera. And what happens is you start to see how they run their business and how they write, and eventually, if you hang around long enough, things start falling your way, and then you know uh, you. Uh, and so, an example of that would be someone like ramin who does game of thrones or Mm -hmm. there's a lot of guys that came out of the Hans zimmer camp and that's a definitely a bona fide path and then uh the third path is uh getting to know young filmmakers Hmm. you know or the people that are making films that are sort of at the level that you're at when you're starting And ari is a great
0: example of that for hereditary he was breaking out at that moment so perfect opportunity for exactly
2: and then you you um You sort of grow together like I I just did a film recently and that relationship is from 20 years ago with uh, someone that I met at a film fest, a tiny film festival in New York City. And we've been friends ever since and we've been doing stuff together. And like finally, we did a big thing together after 20 years We're, Hmm. you know, we're really close friends. But so I think those those are the three ways. And um, like I said, one, two, three or all three. Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah.
0: I love that. It's very comprehensive Mm -hmm. and sounds a lot like Hollywood where there is no right way to do any of this.
2: (laughs) What helped me, and I think this is maybe something that could be helpful for folks, is a lot of times what happens when you're an apprentice, especially if you're good, is the person that you're working for doesn't want you to leave there's a sort of golden handcuffs that can happen and you were getting comfortable because you're like i'm making some money for the first time maybe you're getting some royalties and so there's this there is this how do you break away from the nest Mm. and in my case there was like a, a little contest that turner classic movies used to do back then for silent films and i i won the contest and they gave me a silent film and they flew me out to la and i got to record an orchestra and that gave me enough sort of gumption to say like, well, maybe I can go on my own.
0: Well, let's face it. A lot of people don't want extra competition in the marketplace. They don't want you to get too good because it means that you're competing with them for work. So
2: (laughs) it is a a cynical thing that can happen.
0: (laughs) Well, it's just a natural evolution of of all of our work, right? So Colin, I'd love to talk about Barkskins. And you'd been based in Montreal for quite a bit before you connected with Elwood Reed for this project. Tell me how you first just spoke with him about this. And what do you remember... About your initial conversation about his vision for this very expansive, ambitious series,
1: we um, we were at lunch in L.A. and we um, immediately bonded over the fact that he used to be a bouncer in Ann Arbor at a club that I used to play at almost exclusively. Oh um, my goodness! And, and so it was like there was, a, <laughs> and and then and also uh, over our common um, love of black metal. Uh, mm. And uh, and Dungeons and Dragons, and so um, <laughs> it, just, yes. it was just this absolutely perfect synergy. I I I fell in love yeah. with them uh, uh, so on the spot, and um, and everything. You know, you have a lot of conversations with a lot of filmmakers, and um, and everything that he said just uh, out the gate was was perfect uh, and, and music to my ears. And so, um, just how he wanted to tell the story, how. Um, how true to the period and to the the people um and the cultures that um he was he was uh hoping you know uh to represent how true to all of that that he wanted to be um how he saw the music i mean this is a this is a period piece and it was it it was um uh, likely you know in in something like that that the direction that they would go in is something that you've heard before a more conventional um drive but uh, Elwood wanted specifically to not do that. He wanted to push horror. He wanted to push fear. Mm-hmm. He wanted to really, um, grab hold of the, uh, the things that made that time, uh, in, 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 on this continent. So, um, so unique, you know, the, you know, wilderness and lawlessness. And, uh, and so my job really was to, um, to, to go hard in that direction. Even, I, I think even harder than, than picture, uh, and plot and narrative really was was warranting i went a bit further than that just to really um exaggerate those the 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 unseen that that aspect of the forest and Hmm. um so yeah i uh so all that to say elwood was my um my in on the show and the reason ultimately that i was so excited to to do it
0: so for him was it it was up you know, obviously what he wanted, but also maybe what he wanted to avoid, sort of that John Barry dances with wolves, sweeping <laughs> Last of the Mohicans, you know, heavy. I think he wanted heavy. to avoid a
1: few things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nothing against John Barry's score for Dances with Wolves was no, no, no. actually beautiful. But yeah. but you can tell and the fact that he articulated that horror element out of the gate, even though this certainly isn't a horror story, there is this very sort of forebodingness to the story that I think Makes your music so incredibly perfect for it, so it, well, obviously he knew of, that.
1: All of the stories are of of this kind of birth and you know a destruction, rebirth. Um, there's there's an isolation to so much there's mm. just kind of like the destruction of the the communities that were um that were present there's the warring between the ones that the new um that were trying to um, vie for um for power and for position and and then all of the the personal stories those being these sto- stories of extreme isolation just things that um you know uh, um, thousands of miles across oceans and, and now completely alone and, and trying to uh, eke out some sort of uh, life so it's when, when you think about it in real human terms it's it's it, it is it is what we think about when we when we think about terror and and mm. um, and, and, and real fear so it wasn't it's not a stretch um getting into the uh, the individual like psychology of it to to make that story um play more to the horror Yeah. Mm um but then it also like the flip side is that um when you're going so heavily in that direction um tenderness a little bit of tenderness plays um really well and can be um just huge bright spots um uh, in in the midst of it so uh, that was very fun um to uh to 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 play those um those two sides against one another throughout mm. the throughout it's, the score yeah it's
0: very cool and Scott, your task with Sea of Shadows could not have been more difficult in the sense that <laughs> the film you're scoring...
2: Wait, you've the- met the director? No, I'm just joking. He's a great guy. I just, I'm just kidding. He's we
0: awesome. We did speak to him for this podcast. And <laughs> no, he's
2: really sweet. He is a sweet guy.
0: And also, I can't imagine, first of all, the task he had ahead of him. But the fact that he didn't himself even know what the final story would be. He set out to capture something. It continued to evolve over six months and the final product was not what he initially dreamed it would be. So as a composer, are you waiting until he's done before you even begin? Or or are you communicating with him during the six months he shot in Mexico as his story started from an endangered species documentary to a story about cartels, to a story about local fisher people? I mean, this is numerous stories that end up being told. How do you possibly even approach what makes sense for this as a composer?
2: So, uh, in documentaries in particular, uh, my preference is to be involved as early as humanly possible. Uh, the downside of that is what you might imagine a lot of material left on the cutting room floor musically, (laughs) but the upside is, um, one of the problems with, it's a problem in all film scoring, but it's particularly problematic in documentaries from a film scoring perspective is temp music. Mm. And because documentaries, because the story is being created via editing, there is a a bit of a script. They call it a script. Obviously, it's nothing like a narrative. Uh, Because of that, if you find a piece of music that makes something work that hasn't been working for 10 days, you become very attached to it. You know, Mm. you meaning an editor and a director. And then when the composer comes along in the end, there's not a lot of leeway for... um, originality. And so I try to get in real early and start creating material. And so that material will evolve when the stories evolved. I mean, I was on this because I knew them from a previous project, uh, the Ivory Game. Hmm. I was uh, Wolfgang, who's one of the producers, you know, he was out here in L.A. and, and we were having a drink and he was telling me about this idea before they even ever shot it. And I was like, I'm in, let's do it. You know? So a lot of times it happens like that. And we start making music and coming up with themes and ideas. Um, there were some things we knew we would want to do and some problems we would knew, we knew no matter what we'd have to solve. And one of those problems is how do you deal with, uh, the location? Uh, there is, a local color musically there's ethnicity how do you deal with those things in a way that enters into the music that's uh respectful Mm. uh you're it's not a cliche but also you you maybe don't completely ignore it how do you work those things in an interesting way so those are discussions we started having early and they shaped some of the early ideas for Mm. the piece
0: that's great and we will listen to a clip later where you can take us further down that path yeah So let's start actually with listening to a clip from Barkskins and then Colin you can tell us after we've listened to it what we've just heard and also a little bit more about how you composed it. So let's give a listen. So we can definitely tell from what we've just heard that this is not a comedy. First of all, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do tell us, Colin, exactly what we've just heard down to the instruments and how you orchestrated them.
1: The instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a combination of the throb that was was happening. It was a contrabass clarinet um, uh, mic'd in a number of uh, very close ways uh, to get um, the the very um banana sound <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that that really really close um uh suspenseful um click clack and um and then that throb that comes and goes was a uh actually a new instrument i just got last year or a year before uh called the two backs which is a contrabass saxophone but a new build by a by a um a guy named uh, benedict Eppelsheim in in munich it's a gorgeous instrument um and one of the things that i've used a lot over the course of the past couple years uh now on numerous scores and then uh the rest of it really well i think there's a little bit of um of fender Rhodes, and and then the rest of it is just my voice uh really which i'm which for that i mic um through my throat
0: so tell me, and I, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but when you talk about singing, like, what would that mean? Like, what are you, are you just making sounds with your voice, just high-pitched sounds? Or what are you doing in that moment?
1: I'm singing. I mean, I'm singing. Okay. <laughs> What's, what?
0: But like you're singing <laughs> well, words, you're singing... What oh, you-
1: no, 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 okay. no. Did you hear... So the, the, the very, very end of that, that one, the, as, the, as the, all of the low-end mm-hmm. information starts to spill out and, and dissolve, you hear that one high note that's mm-hmm. left ringing and then bends up right. and then dissolves itself. That's just me singing a high note okay. and then bending it up. And, but no, I did not use words. I have done that in the past um, and obscured the actual shape of, the, of, the, of my voice. So you can do that by, um, by just EQing the the mic afterwards and taking out everything that gives it actual shape of words or again micing through the throat so that you don't get the um the the any of the mouth in there which which gives the the shape to all of our words okay. um and so i'll do uh, variations on that if i want a little bit more of the shape of words i'll actually mic it through my mouth and then just cut some of the um the higher partials of the um of the frequencies out, um, to obscure. And if I want really just to have shape and tone, I will make it right, wow. right there uh, through the throat.
0: That's a fascinating um, process.
1: I do have quite a falsetto. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even Scott is like, Oh my God. <laughs> that's
1: fun." <laughs> well, no, as Scott was talking about, like so much of what makes this so fun is, is the playing, you know, we get mm-hmm. to be, Children forever in that sense that we get to come into these laboratories and um, and think about how am I going to make someone feel mm. um, this way or that way or um, and uh, and then you just start trying things and and seeing what really sticks and and ultimately you are the barometer of that emotion so we have to be this kind of yeah this uh, this emotional test case constantly thinking is this a, is this evoking the right response in me. Awesome. Then let's go with it. And um, and I I find it to be it's my favorite part. The the biggest challenge and my favorite part of the whole process is mm. is just um, that that experimenting
2: and that playing. That's great. And to that to that point in our you know current Zoom quarantine culture, <laughs> what I've been doing is I've been taking little mini videos of whatever nonsense I'm up to putting this through a guitar amp or banging on oh like our coffee table is an incredible drum. Whatever <laughs> we're crazy <laughs> thing we're up to. And I've been sending those little snippets to whoever I'm working with, you know, the showrunner on this one TV show. Oh. And and I found that you know, I just started doing it for fun, but I found that it's actually—it's not something I would normally do in the past. But I found that it, it really engaged them in the creative process. And then when they, when we started reviewing the music, they were kind of waiting to listen for those moments that they'd seen mm-hmm. on that. And, and I just found it was a, a way to remind them because I think one thing that happens as composers is I think people think that we just sit in front of the computer and press buttons, and then the computer makes music for yeah. us. That's called being a DJ, which is cool, cool too. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're composing, you're actually creating music. And people actually forget that. And what I've Mm -hmm. noticed is, and I'm sure Colin knows this because he's a a heavy-duty instrumentalist, when you pick up an instrument, and start playing it if they're in the room or on Zoom or something and just remind them like this is how this happens it might get all messed up and processed and turned into craziness because that's fun for us but just remember like this started from a thing and it's funny sometimes you just have to remind the people you're working that how it's done and they get they themselves get that playful joyful mm-hmm. feeling that we all get when we think mm-hmm. about like music and you know
0: it's sort it's of a like tri- tricks. Yes the Jimmy Fallon classroom instruments performances
2: where totally. you were you really like,
0: Oh, these are humans touching objects and creating sound from
2: them. Right. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. It's important to just yeah. remind them what we're up to. Cause especially when deadlines get crazy and, and I think oh, they yeah, think dude. we can just walk <laughs> into our studio and 30 seconds later, and the problem is we can do that. But if we do that, that means we use something that we already had. And that's, <laughs> right. that's pulling us away from creativity, you know? Yeah. Right. You're oh, not, you're not engineers. You're <laughs> artists. I, if, first, if I, sh- right. if, if I say no problem. I'll get you that brand new cue in 30 seconds. And it's a seven minute cue. Well, guess what I did? I sent you something old. You know
1: what I mean? <laughs>
2: Your secret is safe with us, Scott. Okay.
0: And did you have access to all the scripts when you started this process? I did.
1: Okay. I, uh, the same thing as Scott. Um, I have been a, uh, a, a, a staunch proponent of, um, uh, railing against the use of temp whenever we can and to whoever we can uh, in the industry to make it so that we start to get, um, so that they start to hire composers early in on the process when they're when they're- bringing editors in when they're you know bringing everybody in so that we can be part of that process, so um with something like this show with the first that I did um two years ago now with hereditary with most of the things that I've done over the course of the past uh, at least i guess five years um it's been that way where I will write um an enormous amount of music just to the scripts. And then those, those, that music um, will then get sifted through and the, the things that really resonate will get used as the temp themselves. And I'll, and I'll um, expand on that as the edit's coming along so we can really um, stack the temp with things that have been written specifically for the, the film or the, or the series.
0: Hmm. That's really incredible. And let's actually listen now to a clip from Sea of Shadows. And this is the main title's theme, which is beautiful guitar. So let's give a listen to that. beautiful
1: thank you that's yeah that's that's lovely it is so so
0: it's lovely and but also again there's this underlying sense of unrest and the guitar is just pairs so beautifully with the with the strings underneath which again are telling us not everything is as it seems so tell me a little bit about how you tried to evoke that in this piece and, and again what instruments are we listening to
2: so the main solo instrument is called a charango which is like a guitar it's got some it's small and, and it sounds some, smaller like
0: a mandolin almost. Yeah, and
2: it's got mm-hmm. the strings are doubled up in a way that makes it uh, resonate really cool. Um, and um, that's an example of an instrument that isn't necessarily Mexican per se. Uh, and that's an example. of, I guess what I'm talking about about where do you want to land in this sort of musical style. And so we went with that instrument because it feels like of a region, but it's also just has a really pretty sound, and mm. and so that was sort of our criteria, and um, and then there's a forty-piece uh, string orchestra, and then just some you know weird sounds we made in our studio. We sometimes do stuff like, I mean all composers do this, but we'll take a sound that's pretty cool, and then we'll. Play it through a guitar amp down the hall, then put a microphone at the end of the hall and record it. And in our minds, think we've somehow made it better, you know. And then we get really excited about it. It's probably worse, but we get really excited. So, you know, for this, this was no exception. We we uh, we manipulated some things like that. And in, in general, which what we tried to do for the show was, um, uh, if you are using instruments that are, for lack of a better word, ethnic maybe use them in an unexpected way, maybe have hmm. them play yeah. something more Western or juxtapose them, you know, with visual. You know, it's just when it's, oh, there's a Mexican person. Here's some There's right. Mexican. We're that's not going to hear a
0: mariachi like, in this film. And if <laughs> we are going to do that, right. then
2: that should just be source music and a, something diegetic, something playing that's a completely authentic, yeah. especially in a documentary.
0: And it also evokes the marine setting as well. It doesn't sound like, what we would have heard in the Ivory Game. This does sound almost like a verging on Calypso, but not a party song.
2: <laughs> that was a real challenge because where, where this lives in the, in the film, oh, in Ivory Game and in this film, they, both films had a challenge of trying to set up what the issue, the main issue was early And Mm. so they chose to do that with a main title animation that was really beautiful. In in Ivory Game, they used elephants and tusks. Gorgeous. This one, they showed. They basically showed the problem, which is this one fish is being, you know, um, hunted aggressively, and as a byproduct of it, they're catching this baby whale. And killing it. So actually, the thing that they're trying to get is not even the thing that's being affected. It's this baby whale. So that's a very hard thing to understand. And it was a problem in the duck because they don't look that different. Mm. You know, they're similar mm-hmm. size. And so with this animation, they're able to kind of portray that and usher us in. And I always like it. I miss main titles. You know, they've kind of gone out of vogue. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But I I always love it when there's a main title because you get to come out and be like, by the way, here's the music <laughs> of your show. And then you can be way more subtle in how you work the theme back in. Sometimes you don't really get to give the full theme until the end of the movie and you're like, by the way, that was the theme. I hope you noticed it <laughs> right. before when I couldn't use it. You well, know? and
0: also titles can be very helpful for films that become amalgams of a lot of different genres because I think audiences go into it. Oh, this is an activist. This is a National Geographic documentary. And then it ends up being a thriller. So I think the opening tells us nothing about what you're about to see is what you expected. So I think it serves a, a real purpose in that sense.
1: Yeah, and it becomes such an emblem that can... That can exist outside of the of the uh, um, of the film or series and represent it in so many different ways. I, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Yeah, I love titles. <laughs> I, I miss them. <laughs> so
0: I have a general question, and this is for both of you. To what degree is it a help and a hindrance when the filmmaker and the collaborator you're working with on a certain project is a music person, him or herself? Is it better when they can say, you know, I really think this should be up a key. I really think this should be a different style when they're actually referencing specific musical tropes. Or is it better when they don't know what they're doing and they just sort of give you free reign? <laughs> Maybe Colin, you can start.
1: Uh, as I have never experienced the former. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly haven't. Um, uh, sp- not someone su- specifically who's... who's um, who specifically using musical language and 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 speaking to that? Um, for for example, when uh, we were doing when we were I uh, was first talking with uh, David Slade and and Elwood Reed for Barkskins, and he's the director. Uh, of, of a Yeah, he directed of the, the first two episodes mm-hmm. and executive produced. Um, just a brilliant guy and such a, a fun brilliant mind to uh, to discuss things with but um when we first were, were speaking you know th- there there are things thrown out like well really the music has to it, it, it comes down to we have to find the sound of the forest and so mm-hmm. i like for me i like definitions and i i need to find them when i'm it, when i'm trying to establish what the sound is and so um i then was like okay there are a number of ways to answer that question how about we do several um and so you approach that um in literal ways and in figurative ways and and then and and try to figure out how best to implement that so if we if we want uh, the sound of the forest through um through uh, you know figurative ways one of the things uh, like I spoke of earlier was if you spend a lot of time in in the in the woods as I I have um, you and and you're in silence you notice that the the bed of sound is is usually a mix it's, it's a mixture of of the air going through leaves mm. and of trees gently swaying in a in a very low groan a bed of low groan and so using um a lot of low strings mixed very very hairy mm. um coming up and down undulating with um with uh these you know throbbing kind of glissandi uh, mixed with my own voice um, mic'd very very airily that's then figuratively representative of the sound of the forest and something more um for this show that i did that was like a literal representation was really just going and getting um field recordings of 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 red squirrels of different birds and ravens and i i snuck a um a uh sea lion into it because it was Hmm. just too good to not use (laughs) but then taking that and and you know manipulating it running you know stretching it out dropping it down running it through different um, harmonic generators and filters and finding ways to make it um act act as melody act as rhythm act as 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 um as pieces of of motivation in in the um in the in the music and in the narrative so Hmm. um yeah, I think I've strayed from the question, but no, that's great.
0: No, I love that. And Scott, what's been your experience with with someone who is more musically inclined versus someone who isn't, and in the guidance they're able to give you?
2: So far, it's never been a benefit. <laughs> uh,
0: it's it's been tolerable.
2: Uh, some of these people know who they are, and they're my good friends, and we joke about it. Uh, I have one person tell me, like, you know. This sounds like Knights of Arabia, and it did. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing. Like, and then he was pointing out to me what interval was making it similar. You know, and it's like okay. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it was true. So it's like, uh, you know, it's like okay. uh, Well, you'd rather hear uh, that
0: at the beginning rather than after the fact, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they keep coming back. So hopefully, I'm doing something right. That's awesome. But uh, (laughs) but my favorite are the folks who are just like, man, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know anything about music. I'm so sorry. Uh, And then, of course, it turns out that, well, they don't have any training, but they have really interesting tastes in what they listen to. And like everyone, they connect with certain things that transport them back to their childhood or experiences. And I find that folks who say that actually in the end have have a very deep understanding of music and really Mm. the challenge for them is just how do i communicate this thing that's bouncing around in my brain that's actually not just like they're not drawing a blank there's a thing in there that's real that they can feel and we just have to pull it out so i i found that that the folks that are have less training almost have a better intuition Mm. because they're just tuned in to that feeling. And, you know, like, for instance, um, I work a lot with uh, this director, Matt, Matt Heineman, who's a docu- also a documentary mm-hmm. director. And what he always says is, and Richard says this, too, especially in docs, he just says, I don't know what it is, but this doesn't make me feel like what I felt like when I was there. Hmm. And I'll know it when you make me feel like what it felt like (laughs) on that day when I was there, that feeling that I had when I was shooting this thing, I'll know it's right. And that's that's pretty cool. Like that's a that's a I mean, what better test is there from a documentary perspective? So, uh, you know, what I. no matter what, I always try to steer it back to story and emotion. That's the key, you know. And also I try to talk about music in a very demystifying way. Uh, I don't mind being abstract, like saying, you know, this is really like feeling underwater, like someone drowning, you know, and then doing something that feels underwater. I don't mind talking in an abstract way, but when I talk about my own music, I'll say, you know, I'll say things like, is that too sticky-outy? Does that, like, have (laughs) too many many plucky bits and not enough glue? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about music in a very, like, physical way, and I think people get it like, oh, yeah, it's – and then that – what does that mean? Staccato or percussive, you know, but I'll call it sticky-outy and pokey. (laughs) Is that cube poking you too much? Do you wish it had a softer component (laughs) underneath the (laughs) pokes? I think think people like talking about music that way. It's an interesting – it's kind of how I tend to think of it anyway. I think of it like a physical thing. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was the sticky
0: outy parts of the requiem that most drove Mozart crazy at the end. So, from what I've heard, I, I can't be I can't be there certain. There you go. So I want to listen to another clip from Barkskins. So let's listen to that. Well, that was very beautiful, Colin. Tell me what inspired this particular theme.
1: That's um, the character Renardet, uh, a young girl who, in the in the first uh, scene of the of the first episode, we find her. Her family has been um, involved in this massacre, and she's running uh, for her life and, and hiding away. And so, this is later on when we're really establishing her. This, you know, her fractured, um, broken. Uh, character and uh, and um, and so really one of the I think maybe the first time where where tenderness and a, and a real look into uh, um, a, a very um, uh, a personal and intimate view into one of the characters happens in the in the series and um, so I built it out of to try to evoke that intimacy and really just peer into the pain of, of that um, particular character. Uh, there's um, I played a kind of a I think there's probably fourteen of them um, all in unison and all or not in, all in harmony but all all of the vibrato in unison um, of uh, alto and bass flutes mm. and um, and then a bed of Contrabass and and bass clarinets and uh, and then ultimately I think there was some tenor saxophones mi- mixed very breathy uh, at the end, just kind of bringing in a little bit of that air that we spoke of earlier. Hmm.
0: And it does actually feel very much like the forest too. It it feels like nature and it sounds like she's amidst trees and and you can feel the breeze in a sense. Good. So mission accomplished. <laughs> mission
1: accomplished. Exactly. <laughs> and are you
0: actually playing all of these instruments and then mixing them all together?
1: Yeah, I played all the instruments on the series except for the um, strings, except for the violins, violas, cellos, and basses.
0: Wow, that is absolutely amazing. So I did want to listen to another clip from um, Sea of Shadows, which evokes a very different feeling, more of the frantic piece of the storytelling. And this clip is called Appropriately Poachers, as our filmmaking crew is chasing and being chased by a boat filled with poachers who are looking for the totoaba fish. So let's listen to that. That is so cool, and it reminds me so Very much cool. of all the EDM I listened to in the early two thousands. Dust Brothers, well, that's what I was Moby. Say.
2: You know, <laughs> just a reminder: our filmmakers are Austrian. <laughs>
0: and, uh, it's like this, they it's like love
2: like this,
1: to. This, yeah. They love to techno out. So <laughs> it,
2: this is definitely catering to my uh, to my client here a little bit, which was really fun for me because I don't I don't normally gravitate towards sounds that are that industrial in an action setting mm. they're really useful by the way they work great but for whatever reason i'm trying to figure out how to make action music out of a banjo and usually failing you know and i because i find that interesting and so but i knew they wanted that and they were right to want that eight not just because aesthetically but because you know this movie sort of is a spy thriller right musically uh and And that's their style, and they're they're unapologetic about it. They sort of Mm. established it on Ivory Game, and it felt like a risk. And then I remember saying to them, I know it feels risky, but it's animals. And like when it comes to animals, people's hearts are so open Mm. that they're down to have a little bit more of a Hollywood score in a doc. Like if you do a doc about people and you go Hollywood score, they'll be like, you're trying to manipulate me. I got you. But in a story like this
0: where there is a clear – bad guy and a clear villain and a clear um, prey, I think it works.
2: And they're running around on boats in the middle of the night, chasing people and getting shot at. I mean, the action was real. And in the visual, it's it's very visceral. It's shaky camera. And, and you know, and it is there is real danger there. So that was kind of fun f- to to sort of allow myself to play an area that I don't spend a lot of time and listening, anyways, to music. And then there is orchestra. There is that 40 piece string orchestra in there, but they're doing a different kind of job. They don't need to do the propulsion. Hmm. They are just there to kind of um, create tension and also provide depth because those sounds are so um, in your face that if you have something that's further away, you know, if you've got. You give it air. Yeah, you got hmm. one drum machine that's distorted and it's in your face punching in the face but then behind it is 40 people scratching away at something in a giant room suddenly you have an incredible amount of scale and that's that makes things exciting and it makes them feel cinematic
0: hmm. yeah and very much if if you had told me that clip was from you know a James Bond movie I'd say okay I would completely believe that that was from a narrative film because it is speaks so wonderfully to that thriller genre so
2: Which is lucky that they let me do that stuff because it's a doc. We don't get to do that (laughs) that much in docs. Well, the the lesson
0: is work with Austrians. They're willing to take a lot of risks. Correct. They rock out. (laughs) I think it's their sprockets background that that makes them want to experiment a little bit. (laughs) So in closing, and and you referenced this a little bit, Scott, and how you're kind of weathering this new normal in which we're all trying to thrive and still work and create art. I did speak to Danny Elfman recently, funny enough. You spoke of him earlier And he said for the first time in his career, he's worried about what's coming up. He's worried that for the first time in however many years he's been scoring, 30, 40 years, that he won't have a paycheck a year from now because of the schedule in which you're working and working ahead. So how are you, uh, you know, trying to maintain your, your living, trying to look ahead, trying to work with showrunners remotely? But what will the pandemic sort of ultimately do to your flow? You know, a year from now, what will life look like? So maybe you have Colin start.
1: Um, I've been ab- like just genuinely so fortunate um, in my position in all of this um, because I had just finished and delivered all the music for Barkskins um, right when this was happening and I had pivoted to writing and recording the music for um, a series uh, called Uzumaki based on a famous Japanese uh, manga, horror manga. And so... I was working on that when this hit and, and the majority of uh, I, as I said, I work with, with, with a a string uh, player and, but the majority of what I do tends to be in, in house. And if it's, and if I'm tapping someone else for, for parts, um, be it drums or guitar or, or strings, one of the things that I really don't do myself, um, or won't do myself, um, they, I, I'm very, I'm also very fortunate to have good, uh, very good old um, friends who are incredibly talented shredders at their instruments, <laughs> who all have home studios and and can get great sounds, and so, uh, so. It's really it, there hasn't aside from the fact that um, a lot of the productions have have halted uh, and slowed. There hasn't been too much of a of a halt for me because I was already employed on that and in a num- in a number of um, uh, already discussing a number of other jobs that had already filmed and um, were were wrapping up and uh, and then at the same time I make my own records. Uh, so I, I'm constantly making solo records and, and working with my. Uh, I have a metal band uh, called X.I. And so <laughs> this was an opportunity to not only work on things that I'd already um, that that I was already hired to do, but <clears throat> to to take a lot of this time and just start uh, recording a lot of uh, uh, of projects that I haven't had time in the scoring um, schedule to do. So I'm I've just I've remained. Uh, if anything, I've just the the, the work has kind of Uh, seen an uptick just because I'm you can't go anywhere. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just in the studio working and playing and and making things. So it's been yeah. And again, I I understand that that is not the case um, for many um, if you know, uh, many people in, in all of this. So very fortunate over here.
0: Well, that's when it pays to be have been a rock star, right? In Scott's word. <laughs>
2: <Sure>. <laughs> Not my words. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm having a I'm having a very similar experience at but I know friends of mine who are composers who are got nothing happening and are right. worried. I what happened to some of us was if your project, whatever projects you were going to work on, if they made it past a certain had made it past a certain point, mm. they almost all converged on top of each other because there became an urgency for content. So right. if something made it to post, it's golden because what is post? It's editing It's people sitting in a room alone. What is my job It's sitting in a room alone mostly. And so and also I have a 16th uh, 16 uh, week old baby.
0: Oh my. What is that? That's
2: quarantine. I mean, what is it? that's quarantine, right? Isn't it what a newborn is. So, so from a perspective of my daily life, I I would say that my golf game has suffered. <laughs> my alcohol intake has increased a little bit, uh, uh, but work has actually gone wild. There's stuff piling up on top of each other. Now, my hmm. personal prediction, and I it's hard to have a crystal ball. My prediction is that we'll see if we do see a slowdown, we're gonna experience it. You gotta picture a lag in production. So we'll start feeling it in the fall and into yeah. the beginning of next year. So my personal attitude now is a little bit like a bear, like eat as much now because you're gonna have to go into hibernation. <laughs> right. And that's why, you know, this is getting a little bit into business talk, but that's that's why this is a really nice field to be in because mm-hmm. if you've yeah. been at it a long time, you've built up hopefully some royalties and that's kind of how we get through the lean times, you know, some dopey thing I did 10 years ago suddenly plays in France and like you'll get a royalty check that you had no idea. And so that, you know, it's not a thing you can count on, but usually those things will magically tide you over when you have those holes. But my experience, like similar in 2008, when the, when these things get really crazy is that we actually have a lag.
0: Mm. Well, it also helps that the two of you, unlike someone like Danny Elfman, who's such a luminary, but he's really a feature film guy. And yeah. really the piece of the business that's suffering the most is feature films, whereas you're doing unscripted, you're doing docs, you're doing TV shows. So it probably helps that your whole he's livelihood-
2: booked- he's also booked yeah. for yeah, the next 10 years
0: he'll be he'll be fine he'll be fine <laughs>
2: i promise you it's just the, the names changed of what they are like yes the, right the, uh, exactly. the 10 things he was gonna do there was another 10 waiting and
0: some of
2: those made it into the,
0: uh, right i, I have a feeling he'll be danny fine.
2: alfman i love danny Elfman. no but we, we love danny
0: but it is interesting if it's good to kind of spread your work around a lot of different projects then when something like this happens you're not relying just on that one type of also
2: piece. i was thinking although i don't I rarely get to do any, but I, it just dawned on me, like, what a great time for animation-type Absolutely. I'm yeah. sure other people are going, wait a minute. I mean, the problem with animation, it takes a long time to get it off the ground and get it done. But, Years, I mean, right? I I predict you're going to see a lot of stuff in that genre. Because, again, there's nothing about this that's keeping me from working similarly. And honestly, there are even orchestras overseas right now that are that are recording. You know, exactly. right now, if I wanted to record an orchestra, I could do it remotely. Hmm. So, um, because that's all we do is sit. In, in our rooms by ourselves and like <laughs> hallucinate. <you know>? Again. <laughs> it's well, just like yeah. welcome to our world, everyone <laughs> <laughs> Now everyone will have a
0: little bit more empathy and appreciation for you, I hope. <laughs> well thank you so much for being here. I learned a lot. Um what you've done is incredible on, on both of these pieces and thank you. And I hopefully people thank have you. a greater appreciation and will start to listen a li- little bit more closely when they're watching scripted series and documentaries for these little clues and gems that you've hidden in the narrative so thank you
2: so much and, for your time and thank you for bringing us together it's really fun to talk yeah. with another i mean again like we're like oh other people other composers exist it's real <laughs> we go through the same it's always nice because it's like this camaraderie that it's, you know they're out there somewhere you guys wonderful you guys, should, wonderful and you we, guys yeah. should
0: do a friday zoom support group happy hour for all the isolated composers
1: Totally. Ooh, yes. I like it. yeah so great to meet you scott that was Cheers. awesome thank you guys yeah.
0: BarkSkin's composer Colin Stetson and Sea of Shadows H. Scott Salinas are just two of National Geographic's 2020 Emmy contenders. You can find out more about them and others at natgeotv.com FYC. I'm Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Thank you for listening. The Making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert, Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.